Uh, well, many of you are aware of my deep, deep love for the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, one of the things I love about Professor Tolkien is his ability to, uh, and his intentionality, in wrapping up every storyline that he creates. So uh, in the books, uh, the Lord of the Rings books, that is, Tolkien keeps writing where many authors would probably have already ended. Some find that tedious, but they're wrong. So, in, for instance, in The Return of the King, uh, the, this is the end of The Lord of the Rings. If you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, the next five minutes are going to be a little confusing. That's okay. But The Return of the King doesn't end with the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. doesn't end with the Battle at the Black Gate. It doesn't even end with the Return of the King. Tolkien keeps writing, and the four hobbits go back to the Shire, and they reclaim their homeland uh, from Saruman, who's taken it over. right? And, uh, and it's, it's this really intentional move Tolkien has done to wrap up not just this big kind of meta-narrative he's written, but the story of these four hobbits. As we, they come home, we see how they've changed, how they've grown through their adventures. And then the very end of the book is just wonderful, I think. So after all this trial, this warfare, this uh, danger that they've gone through, Frodo, who many think is the hero, uh, Sam is actually the hero, Frodo sails off into the Undying Lands, and Sam goes back home, he takes his daughter in his arms, he smiles at his wife, sits down at the table, and he says, well, I'm back. Which is a really, just in my mind, a sweet, wonderful conclusion to this story that says so much, because he's gone through so much, and this, in many ways, is his reward. And Tolkien is, is tying that together. This is the family in the home that Sam fought for, and Tolkien is, is showing that with the conclusion. Right, so conclusions matter. Conclusions really do matter. But as a Tolkien fan, you can imagine my frustration with some of his unfinished works. So this is, we're going to get real deep nerdy here for the next 30 seconds. It's okay. Just you're, you've been warned. But uh, Tolkien has a book that published after, it was published after he died called Unfinished Tales. And the title is pretty much self-explanatory, right? So there's this great story in there about this uh, guy who's going to be king and there's all these like dangers afar and then he meets this beautiful young woman and they become, they, they you know, kind of had this romance between each other and then they get married and they have a daughter but then they become estranged and then there's war on the horizon and then it ends. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, is this, is this the end of the story? Because Tolkien didn't finish writing that story and it's very, very frustrating. Uh, and of course, it's J.R.R. Tolkien, so these stories still get published, uh, and people like me will still read them. Uh, but it's, it's frustrating because we all know conclusions really do matter. How you end something says so much about everything that has come before. And our passage this morning is a conclusion. It is the end of this, this distinct section of teaching where Jesus has been teaching his disciples in parables. It's basically all of chapter 13. There's a little addendum we'll get to next week, which is included in chapter 13, where he's, he's not teaching in parables. Uh, but everything we've seen so far from chapter 13, verse 1, has been all these parables that Jesus has been teaching. And here, as with Professor Tolkien's finished works, we'll find that Jesus wraps everything up in our passage today. He points back to some of the things he said, and he spells out some of the implications for us. 
So just to briefly review the chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel here, it started with the parable of the sower, uh, which, by the way, should be called the parable of the sower. I made a point in preaching here two, three weeks ago, whatever it was, and I said, it's all about the soils. It really should be called the parable of the soils. And there's a big problem with that. Jesus himself calls it the parable of the sower. So I'm sorry. Uh, There are some things you can get away with in preaching. Disagreeing with Jesus is not one of them. It is the parable of the sower. I'm sorry. Okay, there. Anyway, that parable uh, illustrated for us the various responses uh, that the gospel gets as, as it is sown across the world. So as the gospel goes out, there's, there's four different responses, but really there's only two responses, right? There's the, the good soil, which bears fruit, and there's all the others, which ultimately fail. And then in a similar vein, the next parable was the parable of the wheat and the weeds, uh, which focused on the fact that believers and unbelievers grow up together in the world until the end of time when they are ultimately separated, so really, those, those first two parables, the first half of Matthew 13, was all about the separative nature of the kingdom of God. The separative nature. There's insiders and outsiders. There's believers and unbelievers. And then last week, we saw Jared preaching, and he taught two, or sorry, Jesus taught two parables about treasure. And he illustrated for us the fact that the kingdom of God is so valuable. So unbelievably precious, it is worth leaving everything behind for. It is worth selling all you have to get. The kingdom is a treasure beyond compare. So those are the two themes we've, we've seen so far. The, the separative nature of the kingdom and the treasure of the kingdom. And both of those themes show up in our passage today. It's a nice little ribbon Jesus ties on the end of this section of teaching. So we're going to look at two parables this morning. The second one is not called a parable, but it still really works like one. So I'm going to call it that. Uh, The first parable deals with that ultimate separation. But we're going to focus here, uh, Jesus focuses here on the basis of that separation. And then the second parable we'll look at talks about the treasure of the kingdom, which we've talked about. But the focus here is on the timelessness of the treasure and what we are called to do with it. So let's go ahead, let's dive in and look at the first parable Jesus gives here, the parable of the net. Verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So, simple comparison here, right? The kingdom is compared with a fishing net. Uh, and actually, the word that, uh, that Jesus uses here for net is a, is a very specific word, so we know exactly what kind of net he's talking about. So, what this would have been is a big, long, rectangular net with weights attached to the bottom. So, here, it's a, it's a drag net. So, how it works is you tie one end to the shore and one end onto a boat, And then the whole net's in the water, and the weights are kind of holding it so it's vertical in the water. And the boat would kind of go in this little semicircle around the shore, dragging the net and just catching all the fish that are in that section of water. Does that make sense? So it's not like like, uh, the kind of uh, fishing where you have a particular bait, where you're trying to catch a particular kind of fish. Uh, I'm I'm not a big fisherman, but the internet tells me things. Uh, Apparently... Uh, there was just some funny things I saw for fishing baits. Uh, apparently carp 
really go for Fruit Loops. Who knew, right? That's what the internet says. Catfish like hot dogs, which I think sounds ironic. Uh, but, but those are particular kind of baits for a particular kind of fish. And that's not how this net works. This net is just so, it's just big. It just drags this big area of the lake and it catches whatever fish happen to be in that section of the water. So as it says, makes sense, verse 47, the net gathered fish of every kind. It gathered fish of every kind. So every kind of fish is in there. Jesus goes out of his way to make that point. This is a a diverse catch. In fact, actually, Matthew in Greek doesn't even include the word fish. Uh, More literally, it just says, from every kind it was gathered. Uh, So so the focus, he's trying to focus us not so much on the fish, but on the diversity of the catch. They caught every kind of fish. Now, the ESV puts the word fish in there, not because they're putting words into the Bible. Obviously, fish is what you get when you drag a net through water, unless you're me, then you get seaweed and garbage. Uh, But if you're a Galilean fisherman, who knows what he's doing, you drag a net and you happen to get fish. Now, this is important. In the next verse, we will find two categories of fish. There's good and there's bad. That's, that's where this parable is going. But those two categories are not what Jesus is talking about when he says they caught every kind. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not they caught every kind, the good kind and the bad kind. That's not what he's talking about. So, so there's, there's really two reasons we know that. First, Je- Jesus says every kind or all kinds. He doesn't say both kinds. He could have said both kinds if he was just talking about the good and the bad. And he doesn't. And so that tells us this is, it would be weird, right, if he said every and there's only two. That doesn't make any sense. But second, and more importantly, uh, the word used for kind here is a really broad, really generic word. So all over the New Testament, uh, this word kind appears. And here's just some examples of things it's used to describe. So it's to describe the ethnicities of the world. There's more than two. There's many, right? It's used to describe different kinds of demons. I don't know how many kinds there are, but okay. It's used to describe all the countries of the world, different languages of the world. It's used to describe the various families in the world and different kinds of religion in the world. So it's, it's a broad, generic, like capture-all kind of term. And so it wouldn't make sense for every kind of fish to mean just these two. The point with the every kind of fish being caught is the, the multiplicity of species. There is a wide array of fish being caught. It's not about the quality. That's what the kind refers to, the good and the bad. It refers to the diversity of the fish. And then from those, when the net is full, this wide array of fish, the fishermen do what fishermen do, right? They, they sort out the good and the bad, not on the basis of the species, but on the basis of their judgment, which we'll get to in a second. There are some uh, judged to be bad, which are thrown away, and there are some fish that are considered to be good, and they're put in containers, they're preserved, they're saved. That's the parable that Jesus gives us, but, but what, what does it mean? Well, he tells us, verses 49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as we've we've studied Matthew 13, you, you may have realized each parable 
kind of needs an interpretive key to unlock it. When you understand usually just one main thing about the parable, you, you, the whole thing opens up for you, right? So like in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's just a nice kid story. And then you hear Aslan is Jesus, spoiler if you didn't know that. You hear Aslan is Jesus and the whole thing explodes. You see it everywhere. It makes so much more sense and everything kind of falls into place. That's how parables work. When you know one essential thing, the whole thing opens up for you and the, the key to unlock this one is the very first thing Jesus says. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. So it will be at the end of the age. We're not talking about fishing. We're not talking about nets. We're talking about judgment day. We're talking about the end of this age, the capital D day, when God will send his angels and reap the harvest of the earth, to use language from uh, previously in Matthew 13, and they will, they will draw this line of permanent separation. And on either side, there are two eternally divergent outcomes. The, those, those righteous, like the good fish, will be kept, preserved, saved, and the evil, verse 50, will be thrown into the fiery furnace. It's a scene we find many times described in the Bible. Probably the most clear, the most uh, non-metaphorical, although there's some metaphor here too, is in Revelation chapter 20. This is what John sees at the end of this age. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the testimony of the Bible. This is one of the most fundamental beliefs of the Christian religion. That there is a day when God will rescue the righteous, bring them to himself and the wicked will face terrifying judgment forever. And this parable here shows us three things we need to know about this coming judgment day. Three things. First, it is sure. Second, it is serious. And thirdly, it separates. It is sure, it is serious, and it separates. Let's just take those one at a time. As we consider this heavy reality of this coming judgment. Number one, it is sure judgment day is coming. You can bank on that. Jesus says, so it will be. He does not say, so it might be, or, or so it could be. So it will be. One of the most important things you can know, church, is that we are living in a story. We are living in a story, and unlike the unfinished tales of J.R. Tolkien, the end has been written. 
It is already down. Revelation 20 is coming. And if you fail to see that, you will be, you will be lulled into a deadly sense of complacency. If, if you fail to realize this, this reality that, that, that the world and you are going somewhere, you will make poor decisions for how you live today. Too often we live like we're just kind of enjoying life floating down a, a lazy river, right? Uh, where you got your, your raft, maybe a beer in your hand. Right? I mean, that sounds nice. I'm not, I'm not against lazy rivers. But there's twists and turns and that's just kind of things. And there's not necessarily a destination. You're just kind of enjoying the ride. Well, Jesus says there is a destination. In fact, there's a waterfall ahead. And you must either fall or fly. Or another way to think about it, this is, again, nerdy. You've learned that I'm okay with that. There's a, a genre of video game known as an MMO. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you know what that is because it'll only be Carl and teenagers. But an MMO is, is a massive multiplayer online is what it stands for. And it's, it's basically those who play these games. Obviously, I don't like these games. It's going to be a negative comparison. Those who play these games are about to be offended. I apologize. Anyway, there's all kinds of games in this genre. Basically, how they all work is you just do stuff. There's not a point. You, you maybe, you know, you get a group together and you do this kind of little mission or you build something or you learn something or your character becomes more awesome or whatever. You just do stuff, but there's no story. There's no objective in, in the end. There's no ultimate point to it. You just kind of perpetually do stuff. And that's how we think about our own lives far too often. You, you grow up, you, you learn things, you do stuff. You get a, a bigger, nicer house, maybe. You get a bigger, nicer car. You try to be as awesome as you can be, just one day after another, doing stuff. And there's no story to it. That's not the image that we get in God's Word. Actually, the Bible tells us very clearly, we are in a story. We live in a narrative and there is an ending and it is coming. We in the world are going somewhere. Judgment day is sure. Which brings us to the second thing this passage teaches us about judgment day. It's sure, but it is also deadly serious. Hell is real. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible. Even this parable here, he focuses more on damnation than salvation. The good fish get put in the containers, but there's no kind of corresponding explanation. He focuses on the wicked being thrown into a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we may want to avert our eyes from this. It's a sobering reality. Even as I, I talk about it, I, I feel like I, I don't even feel how Serious this is. But Jesus says we need to know this. So he warns of a fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. And, and those images, they, they give us an idea of, of what he's, he's talking about. It's a, a burning furnace. There's torment and pain. There's weeping, never-ending grief, day after day after day. 
There's gnashing of teeth. I think very clearly that, that's saying hell is a place of unbridled violence. We live in a violent world today. We, we know that. We read the news or maybe go in certain neighborhoods and we, we know that. But what you probably don't realize is the violence of the world we exist in today is restrained. God, in his, it's called, called common grace. God has sovereignly in, in his grace put a curb on the violence existing in the world. And one day in hell, the restraints are removed. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. And as uncomfortable as that may make us, it is simply the witness of the scriptures. Judgment day is sure. It is serious. And thirdly, it separates. It separates. That's really the main point of of the parable. Here, there is an eternal separation coming. We've seen that again and again across Matthew 13, the parable of the sowers, there's really only, uh, there's the good soil and there's everything else which isn't good soil. And then there's the the wheat and the weeds growing up together. But the, the focus here is not just on the separation, but on the basis for the separation. What is the, on, on the last day, what is the measure by which some are cast away and some are preserved? Now remember, The fish are not separated on the basis of what kind of fish they are. Their their species is is not the point, right? So I think I made that point in the beginning here because the Bible is clear again and again that worldly distinctions, worldly definitions, worldly categories are never the basis for inclusion or exclusion in the kingdom of God. Paul says Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That would be an ethnic basis. There is neither slave nor free. That's a status basis. There is no male and female. That's a gender basis. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, no, no earthly category, gender, wealth, status, ethnicity, whatever you want to put there, no earthly category will ever be what determines the outcome, determines participation or membership in the kingdom of God for all eternity. It is important we understand what the separation is, but it's equally important we understand what it's not. Make no mistake, there's a separation coming. That's what the kingdom will be like. But the kingdom of God is not like a middle school dance with boys on one side and girls on the other. The kingdom of God is not like the World Cup where one nation gets the glory and everyone else misses out. The kingdom of God is not like Mensa where only the geniuses are allowed in. The kingdom of God is not like a country club membership where only the wealthy have a seat at the table. It's not like a political dinner where only those with influence and power are allowed there. It's, it's not like a family reunion where only people with this shared ancestry are allowed in. None of those things is the basis of separation. So what is? Verse 49. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Now if we take that verse seriously, That's really, really bad news. 
Because no one in this room can honestly claim to be righteous. In fact, it would be better if the kingdom was like a middle school dance with boys on one side and girls on the other, because then we got a 50-50 shot. But if righteousness is the basis, if we must be pure before God, we're in trouble and the containers are going to be empty and the furnace will be full. Some of you may be familiar with the book of Daniel, chapter 3. It's another place in the Bible where a fiery furnace is talked about. There's three Jewish boys who are thrown down into the fiery furnace for refusing to worship the statue of the king of Babylon. And as King Nebuchadnezzar casts them into the flames, he says, who is the God? Who will deliver you from my hand? Who is that God? And then this happens next. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And when they take these three Jewish boys out of the furnace, the hair on their heads isn't even singed. They don't even smell like smoke. And the fourth man is gone. They came out unharmed, and he endured the flames. If righteousness is what we need to escape the furnace, we are hopeless. Unless there's a righteous one, a son of God, who is willing to take our place and go into the flames and give us his perfect record. And that's our Jesus. That's the gospel. Put your faith in him and the very righteousness of God is yours. Because on the cross, that's what Jesus did. He, he took our punishment. It wasn't just, he took, you know, it had to be you know, this long and the pain had to be this hard. No, no, no. He took hell on the cross because that's what sins, every sin has ever deserved. And in turn, he gave us his righteousness. It's a terrifying reality, terrifying reality to know that hell is just, but it is an infinitely glorious wonder to know that justice has already been served. And not just so you have a blank slate. Jesus just didn't, didn't just die so you get a reset and you can start over. He paid it all and he clothed you with his righteousness. Remember Revelation 20? Right, there, there's books with the deeds of everything we've ever done. And there's a book, the book of life. And our deeds demand judgment, but if your name is in the book of life, as, as God leafs through the pages of your story, every single page has the stamp over it, 
righteous if you are in Christ. Because your name is in the book of life. Jesus has paid it all and he has clothed you in his perfection. That's what he did, Christian. He bore those flames. He went into the furnace. He suffered hell so you don't even smell like smoke. And we get to sing wonderful songs about how he, he paid it all, how, how, Lord, nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. He was cast aside. He put you, Christian, into the container. And he holds you. He preserves you, shields you from the wrath to come. So, friends, if you don't know this Jesus, I just want to ask, what are you waiting for? For those in Christ, yes, judgment day is sure. It is serious and it will separate. But if you put your faith in Jesus, it is also infinitely sweet. It's a day of joy and wonder and not terror. It's a day when justice is served for those apart from Christ, but those in Christ, justice has already been served. Because Christ has made us his. But what does that mean for us now? If we have that salvation, how should we live in the meantime? Right, the gospel is more than just fire insurance. I want to I stay out of hell. That is a legitimate thing. You should care. You should fear the flames of hell. But that by itself is, is not the essence of the Christian life. We are called to treasure Jesus and to live for him now. And Jesus' conclusion in this section of teaching teaches us how to do that. So, after teaching all these parables, Jesus asked his disciples, verse 51, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And if you know the disciples... Uh, that yes is either funny or extremely arrogant because we're going to spend the rest of Matthew pretty much like laughing at how foolish the disciples are. They're just fumbling all over the place. Like a major theme of Jesus' ministry is he's, he's giving them these wonderful life-changing truths and they're just like, what are you talking about? I don't get it. Like it's, it's almost funny. They're just bumbling around missing everything Jesus says. And here Jesus asks, do you understand? And they're like, yes. But Jesus rolls with it. He doesn't rebuke them. Why? Well, they're not being arrogant. I think Jesus is intentional with how he phrased that question. He says, do you understand? Remember back in the parable of the sower, what was the defining quality of the good soil? What was the defining quality? Verse 23 as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. We saw in that, that passage that, that understanding, it's not, uh, it's not just talking about some like intellectual capacity, like you, you, you got it in your head. Uh, it's talking about the gift of faith. He's talking about believing in the gospel message, the blessing, the gift of faith that God gives to his people. So when Jesus asks his disciples, have you understood these things? And they say, yes, the point is really like 
These fools who we're going to laugh at for the rest of Matthew, they understand God has given them the gift of faith. They're the good soil. They're believers because Jesus has opened their eyes. They understand. And that sets up this, this final little parable, which is about what you do when you understand, when you believe the gospel, when you're the wheat among the weeds, when you find the treasure worth leaving everything for, when you're the good fish saved in the container, what do you do? That's what verse 52 is all about. In verse 52, I'll just say, it's kind of funny, because after they say, Jesus says, do you understand? And they say, yes. It's like, Jesus is pretty much like, good, because this next one's a doozy. Verse 52, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Like I said, it's a bit of a doozy. But yeah, this verse has, has given commentators a lot of headaches through the centuries. Uh, there's a ton of debate over what Jesus is saying here. Uh, rather than just like unhelpfully list for you the, the different opinions out there, which would give you a headache too, I just want to, let's just walk through the text line by line, let it unfold in front of us and just see what Jesus is doing. So first it starts off, he said to them, therefore, he said to them, therefore. Okay, I hate to do this. This is a lame, cliche preacher's line, but I'm going to do it anyway. In the Bible, when you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Good. Some of you have been to Sunday school. Yeah, in the Bible, when there's a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. It's lame, cringy, cliche, corny. I apologize. Okay, just know I'm very sorry, but it's important that we know that. Uh, so what is the therefore there for? Well, here... Remember, Jesus just said, do you understand? In other words, do you have faith? Are you believers? And they say yes. And so Jesus is connecting their faith, their understanding, with this little comparison. This is the therefore. If you believe, this is what you do. This is what it's like. He says, they believe, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house. Okay, pause. What's going on here? Well, first, Jesus talks about a scribe, which in context clearly refers to his disciples, believers, right? The problem is every single time the word scribe has appeared in Matthew's gospel so far, it has not been one of the good guys, right? Like scribes and Pharisees is this like kind of lump group of the people who are opposed to Jesus, who are debating him the whole time, who know their Bible really, really well, but also kind of know nothing. So they're constantly exposing their... Ignorance. So, so you could think about it. It's like they know the Old Testament like a brilliant astronomer knows Mars. So I'm, I'm sure there are great astronomers who know every, every detail of the surface of Mars, right? They know where the biggest craters are. They know, you know, the surface temperature at different parts. They know where Elon Musk should put his Martian colony. They know all these things. But they've never been there. They never actually set foot in that land that's the scribes that we've met in Matthew's gospel so far. They, they know their Bible, but they've never lived in it. They're just, they're just they're studious. They can rattle off all the information, but they don't really know the God they study. He's just a dry, distant thing, like a, a specimen in a petri dish, not a king worthy of your adoration. 
That's what we've learned to expect when we come across the scribe, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And I think he's drawing a contrast. He's contrasting those scribes with the scribes his disciples are called to be in light of their understanding, in light of the faith God has given them. They're called to a godly studiousness. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual religion, but it is never an intellect-for-its-own-sake religion. These scribes, Jesus' disciples, are trained for the kingdom of heaven, meaning they're learning to live as citizens of the kingdom first and foremost. Their studiousness has the right purpose, the right end, the right meaning behind it. They study what Jesus teaches, and it teaches them to live for eternity. So Jesus says they are like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So Jesus is drawing this contrast, right? His disciples who are scribes, people who study the deep things of God, and the scribes of their day who viewed that study as an end in itself and they missed the point. And Jesus is saying his scribes have something those scribes don't have. His scribes have new and old treasures. New and old treasures. They have Jesus' teaching, which is new, but that doesn't mean they cast aside with what, what, what God has given his people through ages past. They get both. So I'm, I'm convinced ultimately the, the old and new treasure really does refer to the Old and New Testament. So the scribes of Jesus' day, they had the old treasure, but they didn't understand Jesus, so they didn't understand the Old Testament. We see that again and again when Jesus debates them and uh, is, is having these, these conflict, this conflict with them. He's exposing their lack of understanding of what God has already said. You've heard Jared use this quote before from B.B. Warfield. Uh, he captures this point well. He says, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light, which is like the New Testament, brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view what was in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. So Jesus is saying, my scribes, my disciples have both the old and the new treasure and they can more fully appreciate the old because they understand the new. But don't miss the important part. This, the whole point of this parable, of what this, the, the master of the house with the treasure, new and old, what's he do with it? He brings it out. He brings it out. The treasures of truth Jesus gives, and which God has given in ages past, are never meant to be cloistered away on a shelf or hoarded in a treasury. They are meant to be shared, to be brought out. So this little picture that Jesus ends his teaching with, remember, we've seen the separative nature of the kingdom. We've seen now here the, the treasure of the kingdom. This little parable shows us what we do after we believe, after we understand the gospel. And it tells us two things for us today, church. And the first, very simply, be a scribe. Be a scribe. Devote yourself to studying the things of God. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual religion. It's not just me and Jesus and my feelings. 
we are called to think deeply, to dig deep, to want more than just a, a shallow grasp of the treasures of the Bible. Christianity is a religion that engages our minds. What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God. With what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Scribes of Jesus' day, they had the Old Testament, but the scribes of Christ, Christians, we have deeper depths to dive than those Old Testament scribes had. We have greater riches to unearth, and that is all the more reason to study hard, to devote yourself to the things of God. There's sometimes among Christians an unhealthy suspicion of theology. Like maybe that's, you know, that's really varsity level. That's the, that's the next step up. I'm, just, I'm not really interested in going there. Or maybe that's just left for the professionals, people who stand at pulpits and tell me what the Bible says. But if indeed we are living in a story and its ending is spelled out in the Bible, and if indeed the word gives us matters of eternal significance, and if indeed there are priceless treasures to excavate, we must diligently acquaint ourselves with that story, study its truths, and unearth its treasures. How could we not want to? It's, it's, we're not stu- it's not like when you're stu- like, okay, so I don't like the sciences, just my personality. My wife's a doctor, but I find science boring. But when I study chemistry, I'm like, this isn't very interesting, right? You know what I mean? When I'm studying God, there's no greater reality in the universe. There's nothing more worthy of my study. It's not just for people who go to seminary or who, who get to be pastors or who get to preach. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift for all of God's people to engage in, to study the things of God. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual religion. We must apply our minds to it. But it is also not an intellect for its own sake religion. Many have gone wrong here. J.I. Packer, in a really good book, Knowing God. If you want to study the deep things of God, it's a great book to, to read. He says this. He says, There can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. But it is equally true. There can also be no spiritual health with it. If it is sought for the wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standard. One of the main points J.I. Packer makes in that book, Knowing God, is there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. It's the difference between the scribes of Jesus' day and the scribes that we are called to be. You can have all the theological knowledge in the world and still treat God like an astronomer treats Mars. It's way over there. I know all about it, but I've never been there. I don't actually know him. We can't just equate knowledge with progress or, or spiritual growth in itself. There's a self-serving knowledge that does nothing to change your hearts, brothers and sisters. That just fill your mind and actually lead you to more sin because you become inflated and arrogant. It's just knowledge about God, but there is a knowledge of God that knows him, that surrenders to him, that loves him, that drives you to humility and to worship. And we must seek that knowledge. That's the first thing, church. 
that Jesus would have us do from this passage, be a scribe. And second, like the master of the house, bring out the treasures for others to see. Too many Christians live like Smaug in The Hobbit. A lot of Tolkien references today. Sorry. And Smaug, right? The, the Hobbit that sits on this, this treasure trove and never leaves, just enjoys it all himself, hoards it. The purpose of having the treasures of the gospel, the treasures of the Bible, the treasures of the deep things of God is not for you to hoard it, to keep it to yourself, to, to, to have it in your treasury. The purpose for, is for you to bring it out, to share it. That's what Jesus told his disciples, chapter 10. He said, what you hear in secret, proclaim on the rooftops. He said, I'm not just telling you guys this stuff so you can know it. Good for you. I'm telling you this because you need to proclaim it. The treasures of truth, Christian, that you have been given are meant to be shared. They're meant to be shared. It's meant for your neighbor. It's meant for your coworkers. It's meant for your unbelieving spouse and your kids. It is not a light to simply bask in. It is a light to shine and to share. Like the master of the house church, bring out the treasure so others can enjoy it too. And we never be a church that hoards the treasure. We've got all the good stuff. That we be a church that goes and shares it so others can enjoy it too. And what you will find, and this is a wonder, what you will find as you share the treasures of the kingdom is it does not diminish your share in the treasure by a single cent. It actually enhances your own ability to enjoy it. Good news is not meant to be bottled up and hoarded. It is meant to be shared. So we share it, church. If the net captures every kind of fish, there are no kinds of people who we should overlook and say, this isn't really for them. No one in our communities, no one in our families, no one around the world we must leave out as if the gospel isn't for their kind. No, the gospel is for all and God will sort it out in the end. The gospel is good news. Because there's bad news, as we've already seen. The separation that is coming is deadly serious. Hell is real. And we should be moved by that reality. Again, not primarily or only by that reality, as, as if the gospel and evangelism is just selling fire insurance. But it is a real reality we must fix our eyes on and know. T.S. Lewis famously said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, and marry. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And if that's true, if that's true, church, we need to listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. It says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. 
Love dictates that we share the treasure, church. So share it. Christ has opened your eyes. He's shown you his beauty and his worth. And in his sovereignty, he has invited us to play a part in helping others see that beauty and that worth. Let's pray. Jesus, you have set a day when you will make all things right. While by itself that sounds really nice, we have to recognize that if we ourselves are not right with you, that day will not be a good day. I pray that you would work in our hearts in two ways. First, to help us see the realities of the coming judgment and for ourselves live in light of them. And second, see the reality of the coming judgment and care about our neighbors. Care about those around us and joyfully share the gospel with them. And God, we know we can't awaken faith. We can't give that gift, but you can. And we pray we would know the joy of seeing you do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.